Hello and welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast, the show that empowers you to wake up to your full potential and achieve your biggest goals and dreams. I am your host, Hal Elrod, and I invite you to join us each week as we share actionable strategies to take your life to the next level, as well as interview world-class experts and entrepreneurs who have achieved extraordinary goals themselves, and we ask them to give you a peek behind the curtain and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast. This is your host, Hal Elrod. And if one of your goals is to be happier, today's episode is for you. This is a discussion with my new friend, Neil Pasricha. And Neil and I connected a couple of years ago when I was going through the darkest time in my life. And somebody connected us and just as he's the expert on happiness. He wrote The Happiness Equation. He wrote The Book of Awesome on gratitude. He wrote a book called Awesome is Everywhere on mindfulness. He wrote a book called Two Minute Mornings about habits. He has a new book out called Our Book of Awesome that just uh, is, is coming out December 6th, 2022. And it started for him in his late 20s when his wife left him and his best friend took his own life. He'll actually go into more detail on that story today. And in an attempt to cheer himself up and find meaning in his life, he started a blog called 1000 Awesome Things. And for the next thousand straight weekdays, he posted a short essay about one small joy in life. He was kind of trying to train himself to see the good, to find the joy, the gratitude in the mundane so he could overcome these devastating experiences in his life. And the blog started with his mom grew to his mom and dad, and eventually had millions of readers. And one day, Neil received a phone call letting him know that he had just won the Best Blog in the World Award by the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences. And he was since invited to give a TED Talk. He got asked to teach America to be happy on the Today Show. And he was flown to Abu Dhabi to speak to the royal family. He's a New York Times bestselling author of those five or six books that I just mentioned that have sold over two million copies. And today, well, Neil talks fast. He kind of is like me. He might even talk faster than I do, but he's a wealth of knowledge and resources and information. I mean, he quotes more studies in today's interview than I've quoted since this podcast began. That's not my style. But anyway, so Neil is brilliant. And we touch on the, the really focus today is about how to be happier. That's the real underlying focus. But he talks about his journaling process. He talks about what prevents people from being happy. He talks about the power of two-minute mornings and his personal morning ritual that as a Miracle Morning practitioner, if you are that, that'll resonate with you. You can incorporate that into your Miracle Morning. He talks about why it's important to be happy first thing in the morning, how that statistically is proven to improve your productivity as well as your mental and emotional well-being and a heck of a lot more. So this is a fantastic conversation. I will tell you the quote that I wrote down that just resonated with me. I had him actually repeat it in the interview, in the conversation. He said, if you can be happy with the simple things, then being happy will be simple. I love that. And I hope you walk away from today's episode with new ideas, new strategies, new mindset, new consciousness, where you can make being happy simple, just part of your everyday life, even if you've got challenges that you are facing as we all do. Before we dive in, I want to take just a couple of minutes to thank our sponsors for bringing you the show every week. First and foremost is our newest sponsor, Cured Nutrition. I take three of their products every day. They've got dozens of products, but I take every morning, I take Rise, R-I-S-E. That helps me with lion's mane and CBD and bacopa and a couple other ingredients, but helps me to focus in the morning. I take Aura after my morning smoothie, and that's for gut health and immunity. And then before bed, about 30 minutes before I fall asleep, I take Nightcaps, which is a combination of CBN and CBD oil. And I'm sleeping like a baby, waking up, feeling great and relaxed and rested. Head over to curednutrition.com forward slash Hal. That is C-U-R-E-D, curednutrition.com forward slash Hal. And then use the code H-A-L, Hal, at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your entire order as a listener of this podcast. And then last but not least is our longtime sponsor, Organifi, who makes the highest quality 
whole food, organic supplemental powders that you can put in your smoothie, put in a glass of water, a cup of orange juice, whatever floats your boat, and they will help you to lose weight, to feel better, to have more energy, to sleep better, you name it. Organifi has got a variety of products that kind of span the gamut of helping you to improve your physical, mental, emotional well-being. Head over to Organifi.com forward slash Hal. That is O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I, Organifi.com forward slash Hal. And then use that same code, H-A-L, Hal, at checkout, and you will get 20% off your entire Organifi order. I hope you find something there or at curednutrition.com forward slash Hal, one of those two that you absolutely love and enhances your daily life. All right, without further ado, let's talk about happiness and the happiness equation with Neil Pasricha. Neil, you said it, man. This is the first time we're actually seeing each other. We've talked on the phone, but we're finally seeing each other. I know. And now I'm feeling a little bit self-conscious because you have such rippling biceps. I'm like, I did some dumbbell curls this morning, but I think I got to up those weights. Keep up with you here. It's fair, dude. I've been doing a lot of biceps. So, (laughs) (laughs) Dude, when you and I talked, you talked to me literally during the lowest point in my life, mentally and emotionally. It was, I had been on chemotherapy for three years, roughly. They call it chemo brain, but basically it's, you know, it's you're poisoning your brain and my cognitive abilities had declined. I felt like, it's funny, I was yesterday or today, maybe this morning, I was driving and feeling, I just realized, wow, I'm feeling like myself. Thank God. Because at that time I described to my wife, it felt like someone had taken over my brain and I didn't have control. I guess that'd be my doctors, if you will, and, and what they were prescribing. But anyway, the point is, you and I, someone introduced us and said we should interview each other or something along those lines. And I just said, dude, I'm not in a good place, you know? And I just, I was just kind of open kimono. And you sent me one of the most valuable, I think it was a text message. I don't know if it was a voice text or a text message, but I, whatever it was, I typed it out and it went into my daily affirmations. And you just kind of took pressure off and you're like, how? Look, whatever you're going through, man, you're supposed to be going through it. And uh, the world needs you at 100%. So take your time as long as that takes. You don't owe anybody anything. And uh, something along, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, dude, your brief text message wisdom became really a a shift in my consciousness. So thank you for that. I don't know. First time ever telling you that, I'm sure. I'm flattered, but you know, I I do remember it. And the reason I remember it is I think because in the world that we're in or the world anybody's in these days, when you start relationships off, they typically start, if you're both adults, like at a superficial level, right? You you know, there's a transactional element to them, whether that's connecting with somebody on LinkedIn or whether that's, you know, following somebody on a social media channel. In this case, yeah, it was over text. But still, you know, I knew I knew we were born the same year. I knew our books have like almost the same titles, right? Like uh, they both have the word equation in them. They both have the word mornings in them. I'm like, this guy, this person seeming like a kindred spirit. But then the the, the conversations start off transactional. They start start off superficial. And so for you to be vulnerable and to share with you what you're going through, it 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 made me kind of want to do the same thing. And so you know, um, a, a question I always have in the back of my head is like, how do you get relationships into that sort of second kind of gear quicker? You know. And so I guess I guess one way is to Take an um, intimate emotional text that you exchanged a few years ago and then translate them into seeing each other for the first time on your podcast, which is what's happening now. That's literally happening in this moment. I know I'm with you. You know, Robin Sharma has a great quote, a fellow Canadian, Robin Sharma, of course. And uh, he's your Tony Robbins of up north. It's the reason I don't have a shaved head, by the way, because then I'd walk down the streets in Toronto. They would think you were... Robin. Well, Robin. Uh, yeah. Oh, you're not Robin. Never mind. <laughs> you're just Neil. Never mind. What is this quote? When you're vulnerable with people, they fall in love with you. Mm. And for me, it, I know a lot of people struggle with vulnerability because either they view it as that they're going to be viewed as weak or whatever it is. I don't know if it's my brain damage from my car accident, but I've never had a problem being vulnerable. I just, blah, like whatever I'm thinking, feeling, experiencing, I just share it. And so I kind of do that by default. But I think that to your point, how do we go to second gear in, in a relationship? How do we get past the superficial bullshit and actually have meaningful connection with another person? The thing is, you can do it quickly, right? And I think you do it quickly. I think those are the two 
one, be vulnerable. Just be totally authentic. Be yourself. Don't try to impress. I always say, don't worry about impressing people. Try to add value to their lives. They don't care about how impressive you are. They care about what can you do for them. I mean, really, right? Selfishly, what can you do for them? But going to second gear, that being vulnerable and then looking for ways to serve. And so it's like you and I both played the dance, right? Like I was vulnerable. You selflessly looked to serve a person that you had just met. And immediately, right, there was a connection established. And and now, yeah, I mean, yeah, two years later, I think it's like we're finally face-to-face uh, on Zoom. But uh, yeah, man, I'm excited to have a conversation with uh, with you. Me too. And I think that I agree with both those things. Be vulnerable, lean in. You know, that's how relationships... We're all the same at the end of the day. Let's do this. I had a question I was going to ask you about two-minute mornings. You wrote a book called Two-Minute Mornings. And I I wrote a book called The Miracle Morning, obviously, and how important you talked about it is to be happy in the morning. I want to get to that, but I actually want to start with your origin story. I just... I I found it fascinating and real and authentic and and just... Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to give away uh, much. So yeah, talk about your origin story, man. Sure. My mom was born in Nairobi, Kenya. My dad is born outside of Amritsar, India. They had an arranged marriage in England where my dad asked my mom on their first date to eat a hamburger. My mom said yes. And their second date was their wedding. He just didn't want to marry a vegetarian. Yeah, for real. In 1966, they came to Canada. My dad was the first high school physics teacher uh, in the school board outside of Toronto. And my mom was uh, an accountant working for General Motors in the GM town, which is where I grew up. My sister and I were born in Canada. And, you know, we had pretty quiet, safe, comfortable childhoods. We had running water in our taps. We had schools across the street. We had hospitals down the road. My dad would look us in the eye and he'd say, you know, never forget how lucky you are. Never forget how good you have it. But how, like anybody, well, how can we possibly compare it to his childhood or my mom's childhood? Like we we never knew what life would be like without heat or without a kind of a hospital down the road. So we, I'd say we were, we took it for granted. And I didn't hit the skids. I didn't hit the rocks in my life till my late 20s when I had a couple things kind of happen all at once. First of all, I was in a relationship with a woman who I was madly in love with. We'd been together four years. We'd been married for two. We just bought a house. We're talking about having kids. And I drove home from work one night to find her on my front porch crying, confessing that she'd fallen in love with somebody else. And although it broke her heart, she said, I just think we need to get a divorce. And I was in shock. I like I, I thought my life was set. You know what I mean? I was like, I I have this. I'm working at a, I'm working a nine to five to job as the manager of leadership development inside of Walmart. I've got. We just bought a house. We're talking about having kids. I mean, we, this is kind of how it's supposed to be. I thought. And then on top of that, something even worse happened, which is my best friend Chris. So Chris and I went to Harvard Business School together from 2005 to 2007. He went on to become a vice principal at a charter school outside of Washington D.C. We talked on the phone three or four times a week. I mean, all the time. And Three days after my wife told me that bad news, I talked to Chris for what turned out to be the last time. Uh, His sister called me at work the next morning to tell me that my best friend Chris had very suddenly taken his own life. And, you know, we need to talk about suicide more in this country. When I say this country, I mean your country and my country. It's the number two cause of death for people right now under age 29. Our suicide rates are triple our murder rates, meaning we are three times more dangerous to ourselves than anybody else is to us. You know, and so I was a wreck. I was a mess. I was I was lost. I lost 40 pounds due to stress. And everybody at the hallway at Walmart was like, you look great. <laughs> you look great. What's your secret? You know, is this keto? What's going on here? And divorce and suicide. I don't think. Yeah, you it's no. Go down f- that and I, I kept saying, like, it's just no food, no sleep. You know, I wasn't as open and as vulnerable as we're advocating today at the time. And, you know, we all have this thing in our brain, how called our amygdala, right? It's the size of a wall and it secretes fight or flight hormones all day. Well, it turns out when you're going through something bad, you're also seeing bad things everywhere. News media, social media, I'm doom scrolling. I'm endlessly oriented towards seeing the negative. So it took a lot of it took a leap of faith one night to come home from work and type in how to start a blog into Google. This was June of 2008. 10 minutes later, I started up a little website called 1000awesomethings.com. And for the next 1000 straight weekdays, I forced myself at midnight every night, like literally the post went live at 12.01 a.m. every single night to write and post one thing that made me smile. That's it. That's what I called awesome. My mother at the time called everything awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. So it was the first word that came to mind. Thousand seemed like a small enough number. And I started writing about wearing warm under from just out of the dryer, getting called up to the dinner buffet first at a wedding, you know, uh, playing on old dangerous playground equipment, 
waking up and realizing it's a Saturday. You know, these simple little joys that kind of were trying to slowly kind of chiropractic adjust my brain towards looking at things from a brighter side. Nobody read this website except for my mom, although one day she sent it to my dad and my traffic doubled. And then one day it got bigger and bigger and bigger, 10 hits, 20 hits, made the cover of Fark.com, made the cover of Reddit.com, made the cover of a dig.com, you know, just to throw some words out there for the old school internet people on here. And uh, I know you're my vintage. You you remember Dig and Fark and all this stuff. And um, and as a result, it started getting five you know five thousand, ten thousand, fifty thousand hits a day. It won an award for best blog in the world from the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences, which I never heard of before. But like David Bowie was like the chair of the board. And I fly down to New York. I'm walking down a red carpet. I got Sarah Silverman on my left, Martha Stewart on my right. I go on stage and I accept the award. It's actually, I know, it's just out of the screen here. I could go grab it. It's right here for best blog in the world. I come home. Ten agents are waiting to turn my blog, 1000awesomethings.com, into a book called The Book of Awesome. The Book of Awesome comes out in spring of 2010. And you know, you wouldn't think that it would sell many copies, Hal, because it's literally just my blog printed out and stapled together. I mean, that's what, you know, it's free on the internet, everybody, right? Uh, they printed 6,000 copies. That's what the the publisher, Penguin, was like, 6,000 copies. That's our goal with this puppy, you know? And it went on to sell over a million copies. It uh, changed my life completely. I got invited on the Today Show and in my most embarrassing moment of my life, or one of the most, Meredith Vieira, the host at the time, says to me, in front of 45 million Americans, and they don't give you the questions in advance, she says, so Neil, how do you teach all of America to be happy like you? And I remember, I'm a guy who's now living in a 500-square-foot shoebox in downtown Toronto. I have no dishes. You know, I'm like, you know, I'm eating over the sink. I'm writing about warm underwear to cheer myself up after working each day. And she wants me to explain to all of America how to be happy. I had no answers. And that question has haunted me and inspired me for the next 10 years. And that's partly why, how from then until today, I have oriented my life towards thinking more deeply and more broadly about what we do from a tactical, behavioral, habit-based approach in order to live our most happy and intentional lives. And that now, 10 books and journals later, flash forward to the year 2022, I have gotten remarried to my beautiful and lovely wife, Leslie. We have, um, thank you, we have four little boys under eight years old. And we uh, are constantly, like everybody, trying to figure this thing out. And so I, our Book of Awesome is coming out now. That is the first Book of Awesome I've written in 10 years. It's my return or my fall back to the original stuff that I started with, which is trying to find simple things to make us smile in a world that is rife with the opposite. It's beautiful, man. It's so important because it really highlights that you know, the way you look at the world determines your experience of the world. And when you find the awesome in the mundane, right, then your experience of every moment can be extraordinary. And that's if what you, you wrote can about. If you be happy with simple things, it will yeah. be simple to be happy. Yeah. And Ooh, I like that. Say that again. Say that again. So for everybody in the back. If you can be happy with simple things, it will be simple to be happy. And if you can be happy with simple things, then it will be simple to be happy. Now, that doesn't mean being happy with simple things is easy, but it does mean that there's a muscle in your brain you can work on. The neural pathways in your brain, how you know this, responsible for negative thinking, those are like super highways, right? It bleeds, it leads. There's no good news newspaper. We want to see blood, murders, devastation. Our brains are looking for problems. Why? Well, for 200,000 years, we've been evolving to find this saber-toothed tiger hiding in the bush. We're good at finding problems, solving problems. That's why when you get a math test back from your teacher, you look for the question you got wrong. When you get a blood test back from your doctor, you look for the high cholesterol. We look for problems. And sometimes that's all we see. But the neural pathways in our brains responsible for positive thinking, they're covered in bushes and brambles. We got to practice. We have to think of gratitude like a practice. I didn't realize, but by writing those 1,000 awesome things, that was still, to this day, I will tell you, that is still the hardest thing I've ever done creatively in my life. Because how many times did I want to quit? Like every every other night, I'm like, uh, this has got to be the last one. I got 12 on my list total. Like 1,000 is going to take forever. It took me four years of doing this every day. So it is a muscle we can build. We have to train it. We have to remember that we live in the most abundant time ever in human civilization, 
ever in history. We live like kings lived 100 years ago. And those simple things I talked about, like being able to feel safe when you walk out your front door, if you're lucky enough to feel that way, being able to marry who you want, being able to live where you please, like these collective set of freedoms have not been widely available till pretty recently, you know? And so now it's about training your brain to find small joys in order to live a life of a a greater happiness. I love this. I want to talk about, I want to go back to my initial first question. Yes. <laughs> the first, first question. Yeah. The first, the second, first question. So you wrote a book titled Two Minute Mornings. There it is on the screen. Yes. So you talked about how important it is to be happy in the morning, right? So yeah. I really, the episode today, I really want us to talk about how to be happy. Yeah. Help people do that, especially yeah. in the midst of challenging times, right? Like yeah. I think most of us, I have a belief that says we've all been conditioned to think that when good things happen, I feel good. And when bad things happen, I feel bad. And the paradigm that I'm trying to introduce that I'm hoping you'll help support and drive home is that no matter what happens, I choose how I feel. Yeah. And you know what? We don't even have to say Hal said or Neil said. We can just go to Sonia Lebomirsky's work. She's been studying positive psychology for 30 years, uh, You know, graduated from Stanford, now teaches at University of California, Riverside. And in her book, The How of Happiness, she posits a model, Hal, which echoes exactly what you said. She says 50% of her happiness is genetic. There is a genetic set point. For anybody that has more than one kid who's listening to this, you know this to be true. Okay, there's every, Everyone's got a genetic set point. And then this is the interesting thing about what, what she says and what you say. 10%, a mere sliver of our happiness is based on our circumstances. You know, what is happening outside of our world? And 40%, the remainder is based on our intentional activities. That means the simple happiness tools and behaviors you do in your life in order to cultivate a more positive mindset. Just one more time. genetic, 10% circumstantial, 40% intentional activities. Now, I've heard Sonia Libomirsky speak recently, and she says, you know what, I want to kind of take those numbers off the model. That's fine. But let's be aware of those three points. And let's also be aware that what you do has a four times greater effect-ish, everyone's different, but ish, than what happens to you, right? And so I completely agree. And like I said, we could go to this woman has been studying positive psychology since before Martin Seligman and Michal Csikszentmihalyi invented positive psychology in 1998. So like she's 10 years earlier than them. She's been studying happiness for 30 years, pretty much the longest person. Her and Ed Diener are the two original psychologists who studied it. The two OGs? Yeah. So, okay. So then you talk about how important it is to be happy in the morning specifically. Yes. And yes. so I want to know, so here are two questions. What is a two-minute morning uh-huh. and why should we care about being happy in the morning specifically. Okay, right now, we got a problem in our bedrooms. 95% of people are sleeping within five feet of a cell phone. And when I ask people what they're doing before bed, how they say, well, check my cell phone. What's going on with my fancy football team? Uh, you know, who, anyone commented on my Instagram post? What did my boss email me? Blah, blah, blah. What are you doing when you wake up in the morning? Well, I gotta check. I gotta check what's on Twitter. I gotta, I gotta see what the hang's saying and that you're on the phone. I'm like, Everyone, just stop for a second. If you drank a bottle of wine before bed every night, slept within five feet of a bottle of wine, and drank a bottle of wine when you woke up every morning, what would we call you? You know, there's no judgment, but you're an alcoholic. Right now, we're phonaholics now, and we don't even notice it. I want people to go and buy an alarm clock, like an actual alarm clock. Get an alarm clock. Put it on the other side of the room, as you tell people to do, and then get the phone out of the bedroom. Get the phone out of the bedroom, and instead, when you wake up, I want you to do a two-minute morning practice. Here's my argument. You are awake for 1,000 minutes a day. That is the average waking time per person per day, 1,000 minutes. For those trying to do the math at home, that's 16 and two-thirds hours, okay? So could you take two of them? If I told you that based on, again, the work of Sonia Lubomirsky, if you could prime your brain to be happy in those first two minutes, you're 31% more productive. You have 37% higher sales if you're in a sales role. You're 300% more creative. You're 40% more likely to get a promotion the next 12 months. And according to the Nunn study at the University of Kentucky, you live 10 years longer. So how do you do it? Well, you grab a pen and a piece of paper. Yes, I wrote a journal, but my journal, Hal, is just the same three things over. You don't need my journal. You just grab a pen and a piece of paper. The three prompts are... I will let go of, I am grateful for, and I will focus on. Let's start with the top one. I will let go of. Catholics know this. Catholic confession chamber. Bless me, Father, for I have sins. About confession, about letting go. But it's not just Catholicism. Buddhism, Mormonism, Judaism, Islam. Did you know almost every world religion has a form of confession baked into the religious practice? Thousands of year old doctrines across the world. We all think that this is important. But what's the fastest growing religion right now in the United States and Canada? It is 
None. According to National Geographic, the fast-growing religion in this continent is none. In fact, Canada and the U.S. are just passing over the 50% secular threshold, joining countries like the Netherlands, France, UK, New Zealand, and having more than half of our population is not ascribed to a particular faith. I don't have a judgment or an opinion one way or the other, but what I will say is, look at the science. Dr. Brasson wrote a report in Science Magazine called Don't Look Back in Anger. It says the same thing. You can crystallize and eject a regret, something you're stressed about. You live your life with more contentment. So what I argue is, when you wake up, if you're like me, and I know I might be like maybe a bit more anxious or wound up than the average person, but I do believe, I do believe most people wake up with something subconsciously bothering them. I will let go of comparing my podcast to Tim Ferriss's podcast. Okay. I will let go of the five pounds I gained over the holidays. I will let go of the fact that I never got to say goodbye to my dad. I will let go of the fact that I'm in this nasty argument with my sister and it's all my fault. I will let go of. Once you've cleansed your brain of the thing that's been bothering you, the research shows it takes it out of your mind for the day. You then, you know, after you chamois the blackboard, it's time to write on some nice crisp chalk, I am grateful for. Research from Emmons and McCullough shows that if you can write down 10 gratitudes a week for a 10-week period, you're not just happier, but you're physically healthier. They compared it to two test groups, how writing down hassles and writing down events. The people that wrote down gratitudes were not just happier, but physically healthier. Physically health, this is amazing. You don't even have to go to the gym. If this is a bicep curl, you want, you want, uh, you know, like arms like house, you don't gotta, you just gotta write down gratitude. Now, the research says it's gotta be specific. Most people, when I say write down gratitude, you know what they do? My husband, my kid, my dog. That ain't gonna work. You're actually trying to trigger a part of your brain called your visual cortex. There's an area in there called Area 17. It lights up again if it can actually remember the specific thing you're talking about. So don't write down my husband. Say, when my husband Hal put down the toilet seat. Don't say my daughter. Say, when my five-year-old daughter Sonia learned how to write her name. Don't say my dog. Say, when the rescue puppy we got in the pandemic stopped peeing on my wife's pillows. Okay, whatever it is, but make it specific in something that actually happened to you. Finally, my third prompt is I will focus on, you know this, I know this, we all know this, we suffer from decision fatigue today. The less decisions we can make, the stronger cognitive load we can carry for the remainder of the day. Because when our decision-making energy is gone, it's gone. You can only replenish it two ways, glucose and sleep. If you want to go deeper on this topic, I recommend the book Willpower by Roy Bymuster and John Tierney from the University of Florida. So what's the solution? Every morning, I write down one thing I carve away from my endless could-do, should-do list, one thing I will do. And I make it the most annoying thing on my list. Like the car that needs the oil change for three months, the dentist appointment that needs to be called, whatever it is that's been bothering me or hanging on, cleaning this horrible, messy home office, right? I've been meaning to do that for a while, filing your taxes, whatever it is. Together, these three prompts take arguably two minutes. I will let go of, I am grateful for, I will focus on, and they help prime your brain for positivity for the other 998 minutes of the day. I am taking notes. I'm almost done. I love that. I have a similar scribing practice, but that to me, everything that you said, what I love about the way that you share, Neil, is that you've done so much research and you remember it all. I, on the other hand, I've done a lot of research and I don't remember any of the details. So (laughs) I'll tell you how to remember it. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. So I buy these cards. Well, just because I was in the exact same boat and I actually, I just cracked it. Here's what you do. It take half an hour one day, Hal. You know all the studies because you've looked them up. They're in your books and you talk about them with, with the people. Grab a bunch of a hundred, hundred, hundred pack of blank cue cards or note cards from a dollar store. On the front, I write down the highlight word, right? Like um, confession. And on the back, I write the name of the study. Dr. Brasson, don't look back in anger, science magazine. And you know what, man? I just leave that pile of cue cards and then I flip through them and I just see if I can get guess the back. That's it. I'm not saying it's rocket science. It's no, that's pretty damn sure. close to rocket science to me. It's, it's a simple way to remember the studies when you're trying to. I love it. So you wrote a book, The Happiness Equation. Yeah. Again, so you wrote Two Minute Mornings, Miracle Morning, a Happiness Equation, Miracle Equation. You're the expert in happiness. I'm the so-called expert in miracles, whatever. But so what is The Happiness Equation? And, and I want to say this, that Without giving much away, the subtitle spoke so deeply to me. In fact, when I share this, this is just another thing that we have in common of so many so far. The subtitle of the book is Want Nothing Plus Do Anything Equals Have Everything. When I was in my 20s and I started studying enlightenment, my motto was want nothing, enjoy everything, love all. Wow. 
Yeah. And so very similar. Listeners are hearing us fall in love right now because <laughs> we have so much in common. That's right. And you live in my favorite city in the States, too. There you go. Nice. Yeah, this is uh, called author love. Yeah. Well, it's it's here. here's the happiness equation origin story. You asked me for my origin story, and I told you about my wife leaving me, my best friend taking his own life, writing this blog, you know, uh, trying to find some salvation, some solace through seeking out simple pleasures. It was a very difficult thing to do. I often didn't have anything. Many of my posts on that blog were duds. I mean, I wrote ducks. You know, they can walk, fly, and swim. Ducks, three, humans, two. Awesome. I mean, I had lots of them that didn't make the book, is what I'm trying to say. But I kept cultivating that positive idea, and that turned into like a litany of kind of Krusty the Clown type sequel. The Book of Even More Awesome, the Book of Holiday of Awesome, the Journal of Awesome, five page-a-day calendars of awesome. I mean, an app of awesome. There was a whole awesome explosion. And I thought to myself, man, I am just, it's imitation gruel is not too far behind. So I stopped the blog. I wrote all thousand. I stopped writing awesome things. And I tried to work on myself for a few years. What does that mean? It means I started dating. It means I started dating and I didn't do very well at it because my confidence was low and my I, I was going to therapy twice a week. I was like just trying to work on all my stuff, right? Because when what happened when my wife left me was she was right. We shouldn't have we shouldn't have been together. She called, she just called it out first. She was she was right. I would have kept going through uh, a loveless, sexless, intimacy-less marriage because I would have I I thought like this is how it's supposed to be. And thank goodness for her courage. I owe her a tremendous amount of gratitude because when I started having my personal reckoning with my therapist, it's like I was uncovering all kinds of issues, confidence issues, issues around race, issues. I mean, I had a lot of baggage that I was unprocessed. So I spent years working on myself. Of course, dating is a great test of your own you know, comfort level with yourself because if you put yourself out there and you're not, you're not you yet, you find out pretty quickly. And I did find out pretty quickly because the whole first year I was dating, no one called me back, okay? Um, another year goes by. I finally get my first ever second date. It's with a woman named Leslie. She's a downtown Toronto inner city school teacher. We have a great, strong connection. That takes off like a rocket. We start dating for a year. We move in together. We, we live together for a year. I get down on one knee. I ask her to marry me. The wedding is a beautiful, wonderful day in July in Toronto on the Scarborough Bluffs for anyone that knows it that's like overlooking Lake Ontario. And then we go on a honeymoon. Honeymoon's great. Southeast Asia, two weeks. None of us, have, neither of us have been before. Uh, neither of us has been there since. Until the flight home, how? When she's sick on the plane, on a layover in Malaysia. And we have like an hour to find a pharmacy to find a place for her to lie down. Why a pharmacy? Because that's where she wanted to go. So we get on the plane for a 13-hour flight home from Kuala Lumpur to Toronto. And on the plane, she goes to the tiny airplane bathroom at the front of the airplane. She comes back to her seats a minute later and she says to me, I'm pregnant. She wasn't feeling well because she had she was she was pregnant. She bought the pregnancy test in the airport. She did the she bought the pregnancy test in the Kuala Lumpur airport. She did the test in the tiny airplane bathroom at the front of the airplane, 50,000 feet over sea level. So now we got a whole other thing happening in our lives, which is that we're immediately like we just got married. We're immediately having a kid. And and um, I thought to myself how, you know, for the last few years, I've been working on myself. Yes, the therapy, but also endless reading. And, you know, I've been doing speeches about awesome awesomeness and gratitude. And so I tried my best to coalesce everything I'd learned into a 300 page letter for my unborn child on how to live a happy life. That letter is the happiness equation. The happiness equation, my book that came out in 2016, is the letter I wrote to my son. I didn't know it was a son um, before he was born. So I wrote it in the nine months of my wife's pregnancy. And there's something about that book. I'll tell you today, you know, I know we're on the, we're talking on the eve of our book of awesome coming out, but like that book has got some legs in it that none of my books has ever had. And perhaps it's the energy that was it, just in it, you know, at the time. Yeah. Miracle um, Morning is the same way for me. Right. There's something, you know, if you're an author, you've written a bunch of stuff, you don't know what's going to sell, what's not. Nobody can project project any sales trajectory. Anyone who tells you they can't is lying. So it's almost a surprise to authors. Look, the Book of Holiday Awesome is out of print. So the Book of Holiday Awesome, I loved it. It was on the bestseller list every year at Christmas. Well, the publisher said, we can't carry a book that doesn't sell for the other 11 months. It's canceled. Right. So like, I'm like, if I knew it, you're going to not print that thing. Like, I wouldn't have worked so hard on it. So that's the thing you don't know. But the happiest equation, that's the origin story. And what is it about? Well, the underpinning of that book is that the model for how we think about happiness is totally backwards. We grow up being taught that great work leads to big success, 
leads to being happy. Every parent says this to their kid, come on, if you study really hard, then you'll get straight A's. And if you're Indian, like me, you'll become a doctor. Great work, big success, be happy. But it turns out the model's reversed. After reviewing over 300 studies in positive psychology, it's not great work, big success, be happy. It's the opposite. You got to train your brain to be happy first, then you do great work. Why? I just mentioned it. 31% higher productivity, 37% higher sales, 300% more creativity. So when you show up happy, we know this. We like happy bosses. We like happy peers. Guess what? Then you do great work. And then guess what happens? The big success, two forms of success, career success. If that's what you're after. Happy people are 40% more likely to get a promotion in the next 12 months and life success. Down in Kentucky, they did a very famous study where they looked at nuns. You know, nuns are perfect lab rats, how, right? Same gender, same religion, same clothes, same food. None of them smoke. No offense to any nuns listening. I love nuns. I love nuns. But I'm saying if you're going to pick a test group to study, and may as well be the people that are all the same gender, in the same religion, in the same clothes, in the same food, in the same buildings, you're, uh, you're holding every other variable constant, right? So when the researchers looked at these nuns' autobiographies, they categorized them into two piles. The ones that used a key word like looking forward, eager joy, or blessed life, they called those happy nuns. I'm looking forward to entering the convent. I've had a pretty blessed life so far. You know, uh, um, It's with eager joy that I accept the privilege of joining, joining this convent. Whatever. 25% of the nuns used one of those three key phrases or a derivative of. They did a language analysis and they checked in on them in the 2000s. The ones that were happier in the convent lived lived an average of 10 years longer. Man, life is short. If you're listening to this in North America, your average lifespan right now is 30,000 days. So if I could tell you, you could press a button called happiness and live 3,000 more, 3,000 more sunsets, 3,000 more bowls of ice cream, 2,000 more kissing your kids goodnight. Would you do it? The principle of the happiness equation is, I hope you would. And if you are into it, then the other nine chapters of the book explore ways and ideas in order to bring this to life. I have some ideas in there that are very controversial, like never retiring. It's a big, I'm a big advocate of no, no such thing as retirement. Instead, I say, chase the four S's, right? Social, structure, stimulation, and story. And we can talk about those if you're interested. Um, and I also have things about not taking advice and things about authenticity. And so I have, it's everything I could come up with, you know, my mid to late 30s at the time of the research done that I wanted to tell my kid because I was paranoid this is not a healthy thought. It's an anxious thought. I was like, what if I die? What if I die? What if I die before the kid's 12? Well, then I won't have a chance to tell him all this stuff. So this is my attempt to do that. And that's what the book is. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. What an authentic place for the book to emerge. And then you share it with the world. And then with all subsequent kids, no time to write anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Very, very good point. Now, what? unless you do the miracle morning, you wake up and you write it first thing in the morning, of course. What would you say prevents people from being happy with all the work that you've done, right? I, I would imagine that's got to be, you've got to have some clarity around that. Well, I will say it's a pretty challenging time and place to be alive right now with the, what's happening with the affront of technology. We're not talking about this enough. I do think that there's three big problems with cell phones, Hal, and they get in the way of our happiness. I've already talked about getting them out of the bedroom. I'm not saying it's easy, but I plug my cell phone into the furnace room of my house. That is the dustiest, cobweb-filled, you know, those like centipedes, like they're in that room. Like it's a d dingy room, you know, It's a, I, I, but my plug's in there. So it creates some friction between me and my phone. Okay. But there's three pieces of problems with cell phones. Number one is psychological. We compare our director's cut life with everybody else's greatest hits. No matter how good that microwave burrito you made at lunch is, maybe you slice some avocado, maybe you put some good salsa on there, maybe you slice a piece of cheese. You go on Instagram, man, someone's at a lobster buffet in the Maldives right now, and your lunch suddenly stinks. You're always a loser on the internet. You never have enough likes, enough follows, enough friends, and we do not yet know. As Kevin Kelly would say, you know what? This is only 5,000 years. 5,000 day old media that we're consuming. We do not yet know the ramifications of never thinking you're the best at anything. But someone can beat Mario World in seven minutes on YouTube. Somebody can throw free throws behind their back from half court on YouTube. When I was a kid, you could aspire to being the best basketball player at a high school team. It's no longer possible. Psychologically, we're always in fear. That's the first one. It starts with letter P, psychological. Second one is productivity. D-Score, which is a U.S. market research firm, says that we touch our cell phones over 2,000 times a day. It's more of a constant fondle, okay? 
And what's happening is there's reports suggesting that we're spending 31% of our time on our phones bookmarking, prioritizing, and switching. You know this effect, Al. You, you call your partner downstairs to watch a Netflix show at 9.30. What are you doing at 10 o'clock? You're deciding what to watch still. You're looking at Rotten Tomatoes. You're looking at YouTube. You're looking at trailers. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming the amount of And every single thing on our phones is competing with everything else to get your attention. Every text, every notification, every alert. There's actually a productivity drop. How often you pick up your phone, you can't remember why five minutes later, right? And then the third the third one, I, I think this is really important, is, is physical. Research from Australia is now suggesting that if you look at a phone within two hours of bedtime, your brain does not secrete the melatonin required for a deep, restful sleep. That would be the pineal gland in your brain does not secrete. Why? Because you think you're looking at the sun. In fact, some evolutionary biologists are saying you get a jolt of energy when you turn your phone off. Your body wants to build a cave and set, build the fire and set up the cave. So there's three P's of problems with cell phone. You ask me what's getting in the way of our happiness. A big one is our cell phone addiction. And I believe that news media and social media has been outed as a huge disservice to our society. These are for-profit businesses seeking to get your attention, use you as a use you as a product and feed you ads. The ultimate purpose of news media and social media is to feed you advertisements. And that business model is fracturing our attention. There's a wonderful piece on this. I'll cite it now. You can put it in the show notes. Um, a cover story that was just written by a guy way smarter than me named Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. He's a professor at NYU. He's most well-known for his books, The Righteous Mind and The Coddling of the American Mind. He's got a new book coming out in 2023 called After Babel. And the root of that book is this title story, cover story of the Atlantic called How Social Media and Cell Phones Are Fracturing the Mortar of Society. So we need to put the genie back in the box. Don't tell me you can't do it. I'm telling you how. You plug the phone charger in the basement. You get the screens out of the bedroom. You start with your practice or my practice in the morning. And you are consciously turning your phone from a push device to a pull device. Or when you go off of airplane mode, it's by choice and with intention. And you delete all the apps on your screen that take your attention away. I love that. Yeah, there are many books written about just about the problem with cell phones. You ever heard of the book Glow Kids? No, I thought you were going to say How to Break Up with Your Phone, which is another one that's that's a popular one. Yeah. I've not no, read that. How do you spell Glow? Glow, G L O W. And the reason oh, okay. it's called that is on the front, it's got a picture of a kid holding a device. I think it might be an I don't know if it's a phone or an iPad, and it, it, their face is glowing. Right, they're in the dark. And it was written by a neuroscientist on the impact of our children using technology and essentially that as their brain is developing and they're using this device designed to addict you, right? Exactly. It, their brain is developing into that of an addict. And then when they come to any other stimulus, whether it's alcohol, right? Or drugs or television or anything else that is potentially addicting, they now have trained their brain to need the dopamine and the ser- right releases. And so they're they're more likely to go back to the alcohol just like they go back to the phone. So anyway, so we have no phones for our kids in our house. After I read that book, I was like, all right, we got to have a talk. How old are your kids? My daughter's 13 and my son is 10. And what age do you plan to keep that policy in place until? So right now, there's a tentative telling my daughter that we will consider at 14 I personally would like like 18 <laughs> yeah. or 16 might be the balance. Well, that's one so. of the points that Jonathan Haidt has in the article is that these ages that we've permitted people to go on social media have 12. That age was coined in the 1990s, far before all the technology was actually invented. So he's saying at the minimum, it should be 16. And auto scrolling is another dangerous tendency because this infinite scrolling, which was invented by the guy who sort of now sort of you know, turned from a heel to a baby face. It's the guy who, who's co-founded the Center for Humane Technology with... Um, he he's now saying I, I, uh, this is something I wish I never invented because our brains are searching for stopping points. You you watch a TV show till it ends. You watch a you watch a you read a newspaper till it ends. You you pick enough berries in the wilderness till you're full. Like now our brains are endless. You know how do you feel at the end of a all you can eat Chinese buffet? And that's what your brain. That's what's happening to your brain now with anything that endlessly scrolls. You can't turn it off. I love and, that analogy of the buffet. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you feel good at the end of the all-you-can-eat buffet because everything on your phone is now an all-you-can-eat buffet. Yeah, yeah. No, I always I call it like a social media coma where you just you're scrolling and you don't even know, right? You're like you're unconscious of it, and then all of a sudden you shake your head and you're like, where where was I? What 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 have I been doing the last ten minutes? 
So Stolen Focus by Johan Hari is another book that's come out on this topic. There's a lot of kind of emerging things, but the problem is people don't have the, people have a fractured attention that they don't, we can't read them, right? Like it's like recommending a book these days is sort of like saying, you know, could you watch a 12 hour movie? Like it's, it's sort of, it's a hard suggestion to do. And so, you know, and this is partly why I'm jealous of your podcast being so short and bites, you know, you keep your podcast to a good, like where my podcast, like, I'll go three and a half hours and I'll be wondering why there's not more downloads, right? Because <laughs> um, <laughs> the thing I'm offering is too big. Why are people only getting through the first two hours? What am, what, what am I doing? Exactly. So there's a lot here, but I will say it's worth looking into what technologists do with technology at a minimum, right? Like the fact, the fact that Steve Jobs didn't let screens inside his house was kind of an interesting point. You don't even need to know the why beyond that to go, oh, I'm just going to trust that there's probably a pretty good reason. The guy that uh, invented the technology won't let his kids have it. Hmm. It's either because he hates his kids and the phones would really benefit him, which is not likely, or it's because he <laughs> loves his kids, right? And uh, yeah, because yeah, he's torturing them. These conversations are important and we're right at the point where they're like, we're at risk of missing the conversation right now because it's become so ubiquitous, right? It is. I mean, I honestly, I get a little bit I don't know if sad is the right word. Where was I the other day? I was in public somewhere. We had a theme park? No, where were we? Oh, oh, I was at uh, a place called, not High Five, what is it? Urban Air. It's a trampoline park, and then they've got yeah. some video, all this, you know. And I was watching these two girls that were my daughter's age. And uh, I was sad watching the entire, everyone there was just either on their phone or drinking soda and icy. Like I'm just, I'm such a health freak. I think that I have a little OCD around that, but I'm going, why are you putting that red dye and blue dye 40 in, in your body? And I'm just watching these little, these young kids just slurping up these big 40 ounce ICs that are horrible for us. Right. And that made me a little sad. And then, but I'm watching these two girls specifically because they were my daughter's age and like, they have their phone in their hand the entire time while they're yeah. jumping on the trampoline, the phone's in their hand, yeah. and then they get off it because they're like, okay, we've been jumping for like two minutes. I need a dopamine fix. And then they go over and they're pointing at each other's phone and they're, and I'm like, what kind of insane society are we perpetuating that human beings are connecting with their technology more than each other, you know, and it, it concerns me. Yeah. So. I'm a preacher and a parish on this stuff. Like I, I have kids in my house who mimic me and they hold a hand up in front of their face pretending that they're dad. So like, like I want everyone listening to know that this is coming from a place of like, I'm addicted, so I'm working on it. Um, but it, it's, it's partly why that the bent for me has gone towards reading books because when Leslie and I started dating, she was like, where's all your books? I was like, ah, oh, who's got time to read? Who's got time to read? Well, honestly, Hal, five years ago, I spiked my um, reading rate of books from five books a year at most to a hundred. And I've kept that up now for five years, over a hundred books a year, which is like two books a week. Why do I do that? How do I do that? Well, I wrote an article for Harvard Business Review, which you can link to called um, Eight Ways to Read a Lot More Books This Year. And you know what? My stuff was kind of simple. Like all my stuff is put a bookshelf at the front door, cancel your magazine subscriptions, delete the social media app on your phone, tell people what you're reading, like sign up for an account at Goodreads or on Twitter. Or like in my case, I started up an email list where I have a book club and every month I have to tell people what I read. So it applies a little bit of positive pressure. And I kept that going to the point where that's why my podcast is called Three Books. The whole point is to ask people around the world which three books most changed your life, right? And I have found that the biggest and most resonant phrase from this entire kind of work or journey I've been on to switch my attention from, you know, if you're an addict, you got you need a different fix. So I'm trying to make books my fix is um, this idea of no book guilt, no book shame. Part of the problem when you introduce people back into the world of reading books is I'm going to say, you're going to feel wonderful after an hour. After an hour on social media, you feel like crap. After an hour reading a book, you feel more intelligent. You feel more informed. But to get to that place, you got to stop judging yourself. I don't care if you read a book front to back, left to right. I don't care if you read the whole thing. You can pick a random chapter. You can pick the index. You can read comic books. You can read young adult. You can read picture books. If you hold on to this idea in principle of no book guilt, no book shame, it re-frees you to re-enter the world of books from a place of love as opposed to a place that we're taught in elementary school, you know, read the grapes of wrath cover to cover. Well, that's not a good way to get people to love reading. Mentioning reading, and you talk a lot about happy habits in your books, that for me is a happy habit. I find that when I'm in an emotional, like in, kind of in a funk, kind of feeling off, it's almost always when I haven't read for a meaningful period of time. There's always some sort of correlation. And then when I pick up a book, 
and I start reading and I go, oh, wow, what a, oh, that, that idea is brilliant, right? All of a sudden, there's a dopamine release that's not from a like on social media, right? It's from a, I now have knowledge, I now have information, I now have awareness that can improve the quality of my life. That feels good. And that is sustainable. And then, so as I'm reading, it's like more and more of that is coming up for me. And I'm going, oh, I'm, I feel happy again, right? So it's an external stimuli, but one that's empowering, that is sustainable to read, learn, grow, and continue uh, you know, to improve. Any other happy habits? What are your other... I know you yeah. mentioned well, some. Well, since you love studies, let me throw a couple in there on, on there. 2011 Annual Review of Psychology says that only reading fiction opens up the mirror neurons in your brain responsible for empathy, compassion, understanding. My last job at Walmart, the world's largest company, was director of leadership development. My job was to grow managers to directors, directors to VPs, VPs to SVPs. The number one derailer hell across all leaders, all levels was... Empathy, compassion, understanding. It is actually the EQ skills that prevent you from going up, even if you're technically savvy or sound inside an organization. So, you know, you're awesome at your job, but nobody likes you in the meeting. You're not going to get promoted to VP in general, unless it's a toxic culture. So why am I mentioning that? Because reading actually is wonderful for investing in your leadership skills too. And according to the American Time Youth Survey, 57% of Americans read zero books last year. Okay, zero, none. So that is, you know, let's just encapsulate that into a happy habit. If you're going to open your day with two-minute mornings, I want you to end your day by turning your phone off, putting it in the basement, and going upstairs and reading a few pages of fiction from a real book. Why fiction? Well, as George R.R. Martin said, a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. You know, opening yourself up to other genders, religions, times of the world, places of the world. Look, I got books beside me right now. Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Have you ever been a slave in Alabama in the 1800s? No, no one listening to this has, just by the nature of time. But when you read that book, you feel like you're there. There, there by Tommy Orange. You know, a wonderful entry point into the American uh, Native or Indigenous experience. Um, you know, I could go on and on and on, you know, down the book pile, but it just exposes you to a range of emotions that isn't otherwise accessible. And books still are the single greatest compressed form of wisdom available on the planet. You know this from reading because instead of watching an 18-minute TED Talk, what do people do? They read the three-minute transcript. See, so reading is still a much more distilled and can... That's why I don't think Clubhouse will take off. Like, because like, it's just... A, the, 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 it's just... It's, it's, too, it's too slow. You know, like, it, we want to get more stuff. It's reading. So other... Ha now, you said other happy habits. Just give me your favorite. Yeah. Okay. Your okay, number sure. one happy habit. Okay. Here's one I haven't talked about before. All right. Bird watching. I'm, I'm <laughs> I know. Did I know. not expect that. I know you didn't expect it because I haven't talked about it before. But here's the thing about bird watching. Look, Andrew Huberman has been doing a lot of research and he's got a wonderful podcast called Huberman Lab, which he advocates people spend two to 10 minutes every morning looking outside at the sunrise. Why? Because when your pupils dilate, guess what happens? Your whole body relaxes, your uh, adrenaline, cortisol, these things go down. Everybody knows that by controlling your breath or mimicking a kind of a long, deep breathing, you can actually kind of reverse engineer your body into a position of relaxation. You can do the same thing by dilating your pupils. Guess what's great for dilating your pupils, huh? Looking at birds. Um, why else is it great? Well, because when you go outside, you're in nature. What happens when you're in nature? Well, first of all, you're fighting against NDD, which is nature deficit disorder. Kids these days now spend 7% of their days outside, the lowest level in recorded history. If you multiply the 7% times seven days a week, Cal, that's 49%, which means an average kid takes a full week to spend not even half a day outside. What's the benefit? Many benefits, many benefits, many benefits. One of which I'll just highlight quickly is that trees release a chemical called phytoncides, P-H-Y-T-O-N-C-I-D-E-S. What's that chemical do? It lowers all your stress hormones, less cortisol, less adrenaline. If you are running through the day, strumming through the day, running through the day, feeling in the middle of the day like you are a little bit too pent up and anxious, do you send an email you suddenly regret? Then guess what? Just go outside. You don't got to have the binoculars handy like I advocate, but just getting outside to the closest kind of you know, as my friend Ali Ward, who's host of Ology, says, huff some bark. That's her phrase. Is that like the new hug a tree? Yeah, huff some bark. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, now, so I actually, I do bird watching every day. It makes me really happy. Not in the way you're talking about, I don't think, because it, for me, it's chickens. We have 20 something chickens and they free range all over our property. I mean, literally all like in the back, we have a pool in the backyard and I'll be laying out, you know, after lunch, getting some sun, some vitamin D and there's just chickens, you know, right. You know, just all walking around me and the chickens make me so happy. And I found that I am not, 
I am not alone in that. Most people that have chickens, like they are such a source of joy. And they are, I don't know, they're, they're birds and dinosaurs. It's like a cross between a bird and a dinosaur. Absolutely. Part of the problem with the pandemic is that we insulated ourselves so much from the natural world and connecting with birds, dinosaurs, chickens, common loon is 90 million years old, or trees that have been here longer than any of us. It, it What it does is it reduces your ego, right? Like you, There's even been studies that show that people who walk around more in nature are more likely to take pictures that don't include their face. Like you you become more selfless when you're oriented towards the wider and vaster history of everything instead of just being focused on you and your problems. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I think nature is that's God's television, right? You think that. about how fascinating millions, billions of species and plants and bugs and, you know, I mean, flowers and you name it. It's like you could spend your entire lifetime and not like just focusing on trying to spend time in nature and not see it all, you know, not not even get a fraction of it. A hundred percent. You talked a lot about books earlier. I don't want to end this episode without hearing about your new book. So the newest book is mm-hmm. called Our Book of Awesome. Yeah. Why this book? What's it about? Who's yeah. it for? And why now? Look, I found during the pandemic, my old demons of anxiety and depression kind of rising up again. It's not just me. The National Institute of Mental Health said that we went from 13% of people claiming they have a depressive symptom to 43%. Dr. Gene Twenge at San Diego State University says that one in three college students now has clinical anxiety, right? Or she's the work on anxiety. I'm sorry, you one in three, that actual stat doesn't come from her. It comes from a New York Times Magazine cover story. Um, I don't want to miscredit her. She, she's she's doing work with Jonathan Haidt about rising anxiety rates. We've got loneliness at an all-time high. The Surgeon General is talking about how 40% of people live alone now, and loneliness rates have never been higher. Not to say there's a direct correlate. You can be alone and, and happy. But we've also never had the highest percentage in history of people living on their own. And we know social skills and social connections are part of what makes us happy. So what did I do during the pandemic? I started writing for the first time another 1,000 awesome things. Every single day since March 2020, I have been sending out an awesome thing every night at midnight again to a small email list because I just sent, I just said, I'm going to be doing this if you want to get a daily email from me. And you know, how many people want another daily email? But it's grown, it's grown to five or 10,000 people getting this email. And so what I've done with our book of awesome is I've looked into the inbox that I set up back in 2010 to collect other people's suggestions from around the world. There are over over 10,000 submissions waiting there. So I take the awesome things I've written for the last few years. Things like carrying the ice cube tray from the sink to the freezer without spilling, adding a gift note to yourself on your online order, when your kids don't hear you opening a bag of potato chips. Now, I didn't get that one. I need an explanation real quick on that one. When your kids don't hear you opening a bag of potato chips? Yeah, why is that awesome? Then you get to eat all the potato chips. Uh, Okay, got it. They're all yours. I don't eat potato chips, which is why it just didn't click for me. My My wife will buy your book just for that. Like that's, she is a potato chip fanatic and my kids will eat them all if she lets them. So yeah. I mean, in my house, a full large bag of potato chips on average lasts less than five minutes. It's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Um, you know, texting your husband to do something when he's upstairs and you're downstairs. Right. And then I have something like poignant ones, like seeing your parents dance. Right. And so what I've done is for each of these awesome things, I've written two or three pages. I've collected awesome things from the community and I've tried to myself, I've tried to take myself out of this book. So for anyone that buys this book, you know, it comes out December 6th, our book of awesome. You'll notice there's no picture of me. There's no bio of me. There's no about the author. There's no acknowledgments. There's no dedication. I took all that. I took all of that out because what I'm trying to do is have it feel like our book. There's comments from other people, but the end of the book is a cacophony of awesome yelled at from people from all over the world. So the font gets smaller and smaller and smaller. The back, the text gets blacker and blacker and blacker. And there starts to be this like litany of hundreds and hundreds. Of, and then the book just ends like that. I got there again. There's no about the, there's no acknowledgements. There's no dedication. There's not, there's no picture of me. There's it's just boom. It's our book of awesome. It's meant to be an antidote to the toxic culture we live in, reminding us how much we have to be grateful and thankful for, and a jumping off point for you to begin or continue your own gratitude practice. I feel like that's needed now, arguably more than ever. I think so. Based on all the mental health uh, data that I quoted at the very beginning of this conversation, anxiety is at an all-time high, depression is at an all-time high, loneliness is at an all-time high, suicide is at an all-time high. I haven't seen levels of suicide this high in 70 years. 
And it's for the, the book, our book of awesome is available for pre-order now, correct? Yes, it is. It's coming up from Simon and Schuster and uh, available everywhere books are sold. Awesome, brother. Well, anything else you want to share with us, Neil, before we wrap up? I mean, I think of the people that make it to the end of the podcast as part of an exclusive community that I often refer to as the end of the podcast club. So um, look, if you're interested in connecting, my email address is neil at globalhappiness.org. Again, that's my personal email address. No one else sees it. I have no other accounts. I mean, I have another older personal one, but I mean, this is my email address. Again, no one else sees it. If you want to drop me a line with feedback, thoughts, questions, Say it again. drop me a line. E-I-L, neil at what? Globalhappiness.org. And I'm holding up a card. I don't know if this thing's on YouTube or not, but yeah, it, it, I think it'll be on YouTube. Yeah. There's my everything. Neil.blog and at Neil Pasaricha is my handle on all the uh, disgusting social media sites. Well, yeah. brother, this conversation was two years in the making, and I'm so grateful that we finally made it happen. Thank you very much, Al, for having me on. I really love the work you're doing and keep doing it, man. It's wonderful. Thanks for making the world a better place. Hey, ditto, brother. Appreciate you, man. Hey, Goal Achievers, thank you for listening to today's episode. And uh, I did not until now realize that you are part of the end of the podcast club. Thanks to Neil bringing that to my attention. But it is true. Those that actually listen to the end, it is a special group because you're like, no, we're I'm committed to getting the most out of this podcast. And so uh, I appreciate you if you're still here and uh, love you so much. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Achieve Your Goals podcast and to get access to today's show notes, transcript, and exclusive content from Hal Elrod, visit halelrod.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Achieve Your Goals podcast.